as a tape recorder when I was a tween. And in retrospect, all those recordings were obscene. But now I'm an adult and I can laugh at myself. Why not play them for someone else? These are the tapes and I hope you enjoy A slice of nostalgia through the ears of a boy Travel back in time with a familiar sound Let's all get lost and rewound Lost and Rewound, episode 11 Burn All of Your Clothing The hip-hop episode featuring special guest Lewis Logic Hola familia, my name is Alan I'm Doug. I'm Melissa. This is going to be an interesting episode because here I am now, uh, 30 years old, talking about rap music again. Got a, bun- yeah, got a bunch of white kids talking about rap music. Melissa, when's the, what's the first hip-hop album you ever bought? That is a very good question. I don't know if I bought it or not. It would have either been pro- either Stankonia or... The first Eminem album, because both of those happen... Uh, same time period. Same time, both yes. reputable choices, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was in seventh grade when Stankonia happened and, and Ludacris got really big all of a sudden, and that's sort of a sure. very clear moment yeah. in my musical. South, the South rose again, is what the, you're the, Yeah, the genus, like, Southern hip-hop became a very large phenomenon right around the time I turned 12, so that's a very... Sure. Mine was probably to the extreme. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that I owned that at some point. I don't know that I purchased it. It was probably purchased for me. I think I was five when yeah. it came out. <laughs> for my 10th birthday, my parents got me a tape of Crisscross, uh, but I didn't, I never listened to it. Um, Why I think not? It was good. I, I, you know, if I had known at the time that Jermaine Dupri production was really the saving grace of that album, I probably would have banged it all throughout my middle school years. I don't even think it needed a saving grace. It's just fun. It's just kids in backwards clothes <laughs> rapping about cross. sneaking into adult clubs where they never snuck into. I, I ended up um, throwing also it out. Also missing the bus. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if only, no, I didn't have that uh, intuition back then. But then, uh, so I threw it out. I, didn't ever, I never listened to it, if you can believe that. But uh, then uh, I came back in 97 with my first technical hip-hop album, and that was Dr. Octagon Ecologist, a cool Keith side project that has uh become sort of a cult classic more of like an indie luminary more than a hip-hop uh i enjoy blue flowers oh blue Blue flowers is amazing um anyway all this hip-hop talk we'll have more of this later uh with our guests so before we get into that let's go on the rundown when i was in middle school during the mid-90s i carried a handheld tape recorder with me almost everywhere i went these recordings were called the danziger zone and they collected dust for nearly two decades now, it has fallen on us. We are a collective here to listen with fresh ears and provide commentary as we dive into the rough and raw sounds of old media, specifically that of the cassette tape, and certainly more than just my own output. Ultimately, we hope to achieve absolute humility as we come to grips with the sounds of our youth and attempt to connect the dots between then and now. Let's begin. with us right now in the studio on Lost and Rewound is a, a good friend and well-known rapper who I'm happy to call a friend. His name is Louis Dorley, a.k.a. Louis Logic. Welcome. Greetings. Thank you for having me. Uh, the nature of our show, as you now know, is that we're expanding the world of old media 
and Lewis himself here actually has a lot of stuff. But before we get into that, I guess the most important question I have is how old were you when you did when you had this audio that you contributed to us? Oh, uh, well, I was in college, maybe 1995. I'm going to guess 1995, so I was probably 20. Were you into rap well before college? or I started rapping when I was 17, when I made my first black friend. No, it's, no, that's significant for other reasons. It's not because black people are like, you know, that's the only place you can find rap. Obviously, that's not the case anymore. I didn't have any black friends growing up, even though I'm half black myself, because I grew up in a super Italian suburb in Long Island. And when I made my first black friend, it was just a pure coincidence that he, in addition to being a skateboarder, was a rapper. And he kept nudging me to freestyle with him because he was lonely. You can't just freestyle by yourself all day. It makes you seem like a dick. So Someone's got to tap the pens or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he convinced me to write a rhyme and record it. And then he played it back for me, and I heard my own recorded voice for the first time. It sounded horrible. I sounded like exactly what I was, like a super suburban white guy, which, you know, brown skin aside, I I was. And so I didn't know anything about what was going to happen in the future of rap, that like that was going to become okay. You could just rap with whatever natural voice you have. I was like, this isn't for me. That's what I learned when you hit play on the tape back. I'm not a rapper. And... From 17 till almost 19, I didn't rap. And then when I got to college, I was I was a pro skateboarder, and I tried to make friends in the Penn State black community, which was pretty small. Um, there was 35,000 kids there, and 3,000 of them were black people. And for me, like I was really excited to finally meet some other black people and like you know make friends, and just get over all the weird race problems I had growing up being the only black guy in the neighborhood, um, albeit a very light-skinned one. And um, I ended up realizing very quickly that skateboarding, especially back then, was not the cool black thing. Um, it, it was actually pretty uncool, and I couldn't meet girls, and like none of the people would hang out with me. And I loved hip-hop, and I remembered wanting to rap, and so I started realizing that if I started rapping again, it might make it easier to make some black friends. And I was getting so into like the the new Tribe record had come out. It was Midnight Marauders, and and then the first round, the first like wave of hieroglyphics records came out uh, with the the Dell, No Need for Alarm record, and Casual's Fear Itself, and Ninety Three Till Infinity by Souls of Mischief, and I was like wow, this is amazing. And then the Far Side record really hit me hard, uh, Bizarre Ride to the Far Side. And I found that one after it had already come out. Yeah, I was going to um, say, wasn't that like 93? It was, 90, it was 92, and these records were coming out in like 93 and 94. Right. It seemed like music that wasn't necessarily street rap. And I was like, I could be a part of this. Then I became known as like the dude who you would see at the party that would end up huddling a little corner together to cipher and, and freestyle. And that's what started my rap career. So this is like from way back then, this one recording. And it's the first song that I ever wrote down like to completion. All right. I have that with me. Let's let's take a listen to that right now while we're, we're fresh on it.
skies are gray. Cause every time I dig into my pockets, it's a telltale story. My banks are juiced back to the laboratory. To figure on a plan to sustain for self. Or meditate on the future of accumulating wealth. No simple answers, cause dollars keep making exits. My pride hangs low, still I wear it like a pendant. Maybe it's me with my fucked up priority. It's trying me, I don't remember laughing in sobriety. The system's buying me, so I invest in polo and vortex. CD players hooked up with double cassette decks. More checks bounce and empty accounts. No money for food, but two bones for a 40 ounce. Imagine every fortune's built on daydreams. A legend in my own mind, no more minimum wage jobs to make cream. Cash means populate my hometown. Refer to Suffolk County Popo if you're looking for the lowdown. Middle class mind states reputed couch potatoes, not a drop of motivation. Mad rules, so fun to stay low. No halos, no angels, just everyday routines. In the game of life, I avoid swamps and keep my boots clean. Pay tribute to my parents for providing me with guidance. Life is like an art, but I apply it like a science. Word. Trapped in that plain pockets lifestyle. There's no escape.
first things first. Remind us all uh, listening the year that that came out exactly again. You said it, it didn't come out, come which out. is yeah. which is great. Yeah. No, no, but the, the year that you okay. made that, created it. I, I recorded that. that. I'm gonna say that would have been the spring of 1994, like like late winter, early it, spring. You know, it's it's got this timelessness to it because when you're hearing anything that you haven't heard from that time of hip hop, there's something about it. That just was never able to be matched later on. Also, there's something about it being on tape that just gives it a, a feel that. I, yeah, I think you it, was, that that. it was a very naive time period in music making. That's what was so charming about it. It mm-hmm. was innocent, even though people were talking about things that were raw and sometimes offensive or abrasive or aggressive. Um, the way the music was constructed was was very naive. I mean, people were making beats on machines and sampling like tiny little chunks of music. Machines that were designed to only do drums. You know, like when, yeah. when Roger Lynn made the MPC, he wasn't like, you know what would be great? <laughs> if you, <laughs> he, he literally thought people were going to use it to just sample individual drum hits and like play them out. Actually, back then, I knew nothing about gear and equipment and, um, you know, how stuff was made. It literally seemed like, you know, the cobbler who woke up and like the elves had all the shoes done uh-huh. to me like i would be like what there's a beat how the hell did that happen that beat that i recorded that over was on a cassette tape that a college buddy uh, named donovan taylor gave to me um and he was from poughkeepsie which was a little closer to yeah the i city. high school in poughkeepsie actually okay it, it was a little closer no, yeah. to the city than where i was from on long island so i thought he was cooler than me because donovan gave me this tape and said that he had a friend in poughkeepsie that he kind of knew casually they weren't like real tight who made beats and he was like these are all original beats and i was like whoa like original beats i don't even know how people make those like i just thought that you know lucky rappers get record deals and then they wake up and under the christmas tree there's just beats there like it's like the tooth fairy it comes in the night yeah like i didn't know that there was just people out there making original beats so you know before this i was rapping over whatever instrumentals i could find on the b-sides of casingles sure um and I'm, i have a healthy collection of casingles still from that era sure. because I, you know anything that was solid that would excite me and i'd want to rap on i bought i bought even if I liked the song or not, just that the beat was good enough that I was excited to rap on it. Um, he gave me this cassette tape, and I was like, you're going to talk to your boy, right? You're going to talk to him and find out like if I can use these, because I'm going to make songs. And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I never wrote the songs, and he never talked to his boy. And like, I mean, so much time went by. You wrote that song? Yes, yes. But here's what ended up happening. Um, I had cut my teeth learning to freestyle from my first black friend on Long Island. This kid, Charlie Tucker, I have no idea where he is now. He was kind of um, a tough luck kid whose mom was like a Korean prostitute that was brought here and, and put on drugs right away so that she wow. would have to stay you know, in servitude to keep her habit going. Um, and his dad was a black soldier in Korea who was like stationed there. And she became pregnant with this guy's child, never had a relationship with him or anything. And my friend Charlie used to like tie his mom's arm off so she could chew it up and sit when he was little. He had a really screwed up life, uh, but he was like the first black friend I made. Um, Charlie was a skateboarder like me, but he also rapped. And he was lonely being the only guy who rapped, and so he just kept nudging me to rap. And then ultimately, he convinced me to, to uh, write and record a rap verse. And I did, and when I heard my voice back, um, I was just 
humiliated and I decided I would never rap again. What did he think about it? He tried to convince me that I was crazy and I was just not used to hearing the sound of my voice. And I was like, dude, listen to me. <laughs> Are you well, insane? I was like, actually thinking about that while we were just listening right. to that. That uh, I mean, I've heard many of your records and I that voice sounded like you, but a younger you and almost a little bit like uh, like Consequence. Yeah, I mean, I was trying. I was going to great lengths to like black up my sound mm. um, because I thought that's what you had to do because there was no precedent for anything otherwise. Even the white rappers that were out there, were, and there were very few at that time. There was a lot of underground uh, white MCs, but... I didn't know those guys. No. You know, I only knew what was on like Rap them. City or whatever. Sure. Um, and so there was really no precedent for like a white guy who just sounded like a white guy the ones that did exist would do their best like this is what black people sound like when they rap and talk Mm -hmm. and and so that's what i did and and it took me a long time to cultivate a dialect that sounded convincing and um over the course of my college years i learned you know my own kind of ebonics i guess you would say and i became an expert in you know what social scientists call code switching and I had like one way of speaking when I was around my white friends and my family and another way for around my black friends. And I, that's really common, actually. Mm. Um, you see it in other communities, in, in, the, in the gay community. And, and so I, I think that my rap voice early on, and, and even to this day, like it still has some remnant of it, was a product of me learning to code switch um, and to talk like what I thought black people talked like. And... Ultimately, what ended up happening is over the years, I got older and uh, more mature, and I, at some point, realized that you don't have to be a certain way to be a black guy. You either are or you aren't, and so in my case, I, I get to be one, whether or not I talk, dress, act, or whatever, like people think black people act like. Right. You know, and that's why they made stuff like Afropunk Festival, because oh, yeah. they had to, to acknowledge the fact that not everybody fits into what you get shown in movies and on tv and stuff like that um so charlie tried to convince me he, he was kind of a progressive kid in that right that there was a place for me even though i thought i sounded ridiculous and i stopped trying to rap after just one verse and one recording and i was 17 when that happened i was uh, a junior in high school and then my freshman year of college um i was on a pro skateboarding team back then I was trying my best to make some more black friends because I, you know, was really getting in touch with my identity and getting over all the weird scars of being teased a lot for being like the only person of color where I grew up. Skateboarding was just not the cool black guy thing to do yeah. back then. I mean, now it is. It's yeah. it's very fucking cool. Um, but there's always a renaissance for everything. Yeah, I mean, there was no Tony Hawk video game. Uh, he existed, but the game did not. Uh, ESPN didn't care about skateboarding. There was yeah, no X Games. Is, is pre, we're talking pre X Games, right? Like before yes. skateboarding Wait, be, and all. Before and the X Games, and it was BMX, and then it just turned into the X Games, which is just this, yeah. Right, but this I is, assume those are connected. I I, feel, I, <laughs> I think it was actually related to like extreme. Yeah, I was gonna say I think the X Games yeah. were extreme. This is before I'm, extreme sports were something that you would see on ESPN. Sorry, guys. Or yeah, but... <laughs> all good. So. I realized that skateboarding was not going to help me to get a girlfriend if I wanted a black one at college. Not back then, anyway. Unless she was, like, super progressive and understanding. Uh, And I got teased a lot. People were like, you don't really fit in with us. Why Penn State? I got a scholarship, a full scholarship. Um, I applied to Columbia and um, NYU and uh, Pittsburgh, uh, University of Pittsburgh, um, 
Penn State and Seton Hall because they were a Cinderella success story sure. in, in a March Madness tournament. And, <laughs> and I, I wasn't even like a maniacal basketball fan, but their story just really resonated with me the year that they, they made it like super far for some inexplicable reason. And I was like, I'm going to go to that school. They're like the underdogs. <laughs> and, I, and I got into everywhere I applied, even Columbia, but I couldn't afford to go there. And Penn State gave me a full academic scholarship. And my mom was like, you're going to Penn State. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess I am going to Penn State. Were you aiming to try to go to school in the city? Do you, do you feel yeah, like your, your, totally. your, your academia and your academic uh, life and your social life would have been so much different if you had been in school in the city? Oh, yeah. As well definitely. as your career. I sure. don't think that I would have ended up doing what I do now. Um, part of what was great about being in Penn State was that it was – in a tiny little rural place and there was such a small community of black people and hip-hop heads in general because uh, obviously not all the people who were super into hip-hop were black guys most of the ones who rapped although like i had some friends who were like pioneers like early brave white guys who were getting up on stage in front of like the two or three thousand black kids there was at penn state and rapping their hearts out and and people would be like <sighs> when they would get up there and then a couple of my friends were like amazing and they would just shut right up and be like, wow. Because they hadn't seen anything like that before. There, there wasn't really like a commercially successful white guy rapper back then other than Vanilla Ice. And sure. people used him as a punchline. Yeah, brought sure. up something interesting though, which is that when you're in a, a college town. Doug and I went to Ithaca. Melissa went to school in uh, Virginia. Virginia Commonwealth. We went to Virginia Commonwealth. In Richmond. In Richmond. And Richmond is always... I don't know. I figured you you would say, but at any rate... It's a Vir- weird little hipster city. It's I love o- Richmond. Which also happens to be the capital of Virginia. It's a confused little place. It's an awesome little place. It's one of Ithaca my favorite tour a, stops. Ithaca mm. had a very strong hip-hop scene when we were there, and I'm pretty sure still does to an extent. Yeah, and yeah. Richmond just as well. I think whenever you have a, a congregation of young people who want to express themselves musically, whatever the case may be, the college music scene is always going to be strong in very rich college cities, and Richmond just as well, just like um, State College is, I'm sure Richmond yeah, has. Yeah, no, it really was. It, it was. it was a very sheltered and happy, little, they call it Happy Valley, you know, that particular campus of Penn State University's, mm. you know, various campuses. Um, it's the main campus, it's the biggest one, it has the most students, the town is the wealthiest you know, of any of the places where there's a campus. Yeah. Um, I think because it was like that, it was a safe place for me to experiment and to learn about these things. And it fostered my courage and, um, you know, kind of floated me along the path into student radio. And, and I was never a host or anything, but I hung out at student radio quite a bit. And that that's where I cut my teeth, learning to rap. It's where I discovered indie rap records and found a home for myself. It's where I was introduced to the first artist who helped me get onto an indie label. Who was that? Um, it was El Fudge, who was on Raucous back then. Mm. Um, he was being interviewed over the air. We played a demo of a song that I had made for him during the break uh, when we were playing songs for the audience. We were talking to him off air. and um, Well, I wasn't even there. Um, and my friend was like, you want to hear one of my buddy's songs? And he liked it, and he was like, I would do a song with that guy. And then my friend ended his radio show early, drove to Washington Heights from Penn State, picked El Fudge up that night, drove back to Penn State, came to my house where I was living with my then girlfriend, and it, you know, it's a tiny little town, like, we didn't lock the doors or anything. I woke up, 
and El Fudge was standing over my bed. <laughs> and and I, I looked up and was like, who the fuck are you and why are you in my house? And he was wow. like, he was like, I'm El Fudge. And then my friends popped into the doorway and were like, what's up, man? And I was like, you're fucking oh. El Fudge? Why are you in my house? You're fucking El Fudge. And, and, and he was like, we're going to do a song together. And I was like, this is unfucking believable And we went to breakfast at the, it was the Pancake House, I think it was called, something like that. And then uh, we went over to this the studio where I had been making demos, and we we made our first song together. This song is that one of the songs that you have here tonight to share? No, no, I actually brought stuff that predates all of this. Really? Uh, yeah, these songs are literally like the first, you know, written verse recordings that I have. Um, and so the one that we just heard, it was called "Plain Pockets." I wrote over uh, an instrumental from some mystery producer from yeah. Poughkeepsie that I will never meet. I don't even think my friend Donovan, who I occasionally keep in contact with, and he lives in New York City, um, knows who the guy is. Donovan, if you're listening, here's your chance to find out. Yeah. We would like to credit the producer if we could. I, I mean, credit them. I would like to to give the guy a hug and be like, you're the first person whose beat I ever recorded a rap yeah. over. And everyone knew me as a freestyler because that's what I learned. Um, my friend Charlie who taught me how to rap, was really, really serious about the freestyle thing. And so for the first year or two that I rapped, well, not year or two, the first year or so that I was rapping, I didn't write anything yeah. at all. I only freestyled. And people would be like, you're going to write some rhymes? I'd be like, fuck that, man. Freestyling. <laughs> I'm going to freestyle my whole album. And I ended up making friends with these these dudes, Reese and Monk, who were... Um, um, two like North Philly black guys that rapped, um, and they were Penn State students who um, had graduated, but for some reason they just decided to hang around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they were a lot older than I was and more experienced, and they had many recorded demos, and they would play live shows together. So any act that came through town, um, Black Moon came through, Tribe Paul Quest came through, De La mm-hmm. Soul came through, Reese and Monk would always be the opening act, mm-hmm. you know, because they were like the most together. And, um, they convinced me because they were super impressed by my freestyle and how young I was and everything. They were like, you got to learn to write. You're not going to freestyle like a classic album. It's just not going to happen. No one's ever done it. Supernatural tried it. He's a great freestyler. He couldn't do it. You got to learn to write. If you want to leave something behind like a legacy, you will take pen to paper and write your rhymes. And I was really resistant to it for a long time. And then I finally tried. And that song, Plain Pockets, was the first thing that I ever finished writing. And Reese and Monk had been recording their demos with these three Chinese-American kids who were Penn State students, and they were in a group called the Mountain Brothers. I remember that. And, and they had won... Triple Crown. I remember that. Album. Yes. They had, they had won a contest um, that was being held through, I think it was 103.9 in Philadelphia. I think that was a radio station. Uh, and it was like a hip-hop station, hip-hop and R&B. And uh, it was with Sprite and and um, that radio station and you had to write a rap with an original beat that was like a Sprite commercial. Yeah, I remember and, hearing the Sprite commercial. Yeah, and they won and the prize was you got a deal on Rough House Columbia. Uh-huh. Um, and so they were label mates with Cypress Hill and the Fugees. There was this weird thing going on at Rough House where they had groups that were three people of a really specific little ethnicity. Yeah. And so Cypress Hill was all Cubans. Uh the Fujis were all Haitian, and the Mountain Brothers were all Chinese. Um, it was a bizarre thing going on. 
that was a really weird record label, like a sub label that was funded by mafia money. And like, I actually learned a lot of really weird stuff about Rough House over the years when I lived in Philly and had become friends with Jedi Mind Tricks and some of the studio engineers that worked at the the Concha Hawkins studio where Rough House did all their recording. Um, anyway, uh, recent Monk introduced me to Chops, and Chops heard me freestyle and was like, "Wow, man." Like, I can't freestyle like that. And they were both like, nobody here can freestyle like this kid. He's great. And he was like, do you have any songs? And I was like, well, I'm trying to write one. Reese Monk convinced me that I should write a song. What was that song? Um, and it was Plain Pockets. Yeah. And he was like, do you have any beats? And I was like, they're not really mine, but I don't think the dude will know. Maybe I could record it and show it to him somehow and he'll like it. And then he'll say that I can like make the song out of his beat, you know, like a demo. Mm. And he was like, um, what do you think you could like record it? I, I mean, I only have a two track reel to reel, um, so you'd have to kind of do it in one take. Well, no wonder there was no <laughs> chorus on it. Yeah, um, and so that was the first ever recording that I had that I was like, wow, it's real. Like, I'm, I'm not a bad rapper. Like, I had accepted the voice that I had cultivated through years of training and learning to code switch, um, and, and my costume and everything was. was on point like i had the big pants and the timberlands mm-hmm. and the hill figure jersey and <laughs> I, the part i had gold fronts i had dreadlocks <laughs> actually if you listen closely in the recording you can hear that my s's are really soft and a little bit lispy and it's because i was wearing my fronts when i recorded it so and, and chops was like dude take those out i <laughs> he was like i have a de-esser but it's not like strong enough to get rid of the s's that you're saying um they called them de-essers? Yeah, it, yeah was, it was a rack mount device that would take out the, like the, the sharp sibilant sounds of your S's. Because S's can produce I, like a high-pitched whistle. I just figured that was a pop filter or something. Um, the pop filter is more for like air sounds, like P's and B's and things like that. Um, so, yeah, he was like, I can't de-ess these enough to make it not sound like you're wearing your fronts. <laughs> and I was like, I want to sound like I'm wearing my fronts. That's the real shit. So in that recording, like if you listen back to it closely, you can hear that my S's are a bit sloppy because I was wearing gold fronts. Let's listen to uh, the other track you got. Uh, well, there's two other tracks you have. Uh, and, we'll do uh, them in chronological order, you know, yeah, to, to mean, the newest. You, you you know more about them than I Okay, <laughs> so this next one, when I found it today, I, I thought it was too live to feel me, which is... Um, I, I think I, I remembered a story from like back when this next little audio clip was recorded and a friend who spoke Spanish was like, oh, the guy in the sample that you guys took is saying to live, to feel me. Cool, whatever, I'm going to wrap my ass off on this shit. <laughs> this, this was like recorded like after I first got introduced to indie rap and my, my first group that I made contact with uh, was Company Flow. And I and I mean that in in the the literal sense. Like I I heard their records as like my first introduction to indie rap, and they were the first indie rap people that I met in person. I came to the Fun Crusher Plus in store at Fat Beats uh, when that record came out, awesome. and and I have pictures actually. Company Flow's sound was very um, experimental and uh, had a a strange like apocalyptic like post-apocalyptic futuristic sound to it um and we wanted to do something that was kind of reminiscent of that it ended up seeming a little more dreamy and weird um but our drum programming in this song uh, i think a friend helped me whip this up because i didn't know how to use any kind of producing software or anything like that um and so i think he did this for me 
um, in like Cakewalk. Huh. Um, so this is probably from 97. I remember that software. And let's take a listen and see what, okay. what, what you came up with with Cakewalk. Connects the heads like bank robbers stocking. Like I'm a senior citizen as much as I've been rocking. Hell's knocking like cops in, bill collectors. A bad dream, fuck a vaccine, it's still infectious when it finds you. It's like HIV times two. No cure for the shit like the summertime blues. I'm due to battle bouncing with a feather cap, nigga. Hope my pages be the gold like a treasure map is one. For a clever rap, two for my duo. Fucking black ops, excuse the French like a Peugeot. Pushing through yo, lane and cutting niggas off like the circulation of your legs in a figure four. Manifest a liquor store of intoxicants. Staggering a solid crew to split them like the continents. Divide and conquer dominant. Rap essential qualities for death. Work better than riddling to ease the stress. Happy as New York is at a pizza fest. When I watch an empty wallow in his meagerness, then I make it known the Ella Dawn got flows. Numerous and pretty streets with potholes. For Mexicans with tacos. Vatos. really interesting and the production uh was very as you said very uh, much on the experimental tip because of the experimental word. means extra snares extra <laughs> snares it's true. yeah you I, as a producer know, know that it, this is what it was just a really clunky arrangement intended to give off that progressive experimental vibe that we heard in the company flow records so that was like 95 96 it was 97 i think 97 so yeah. like basically like a five-year five-year so progression that first one was from like 94 yeah okay. um and then I recorded in, well, I guess, 90, 96 or so, my first ever, like, oh, no, 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 I, I graduated at that point. Yeah, so 97, there was just a gap where I didn't record anything. I was just, like, learning, just rapping more and whatever. And I didn't I didn't bring everything. I actually, I found another song that I recorded over that Poughkeepsie guy's beat, a different, a different beat. Um, but I, I hated that one. <laughs> hey, no, look. I'm not ashamed of it. It's just like there's nothing you know, to be ashamed. There, there's of. a limit to how much of it I want to share. No, sure. that's it's it's it, less is more. But at the same time, whatever you you feel is uh, whatever's you're most comfortable with, and, and, and whatever makes you know whatever makes the best story. Or whatever yeah, sure. It is the, you yeah. Know, well, what I mean, you want to express about the experience of making it. I figured that you'd really get the full picture by having like the first one that i ever did mm-hmm. and, and so we did do that one um but there was another one that i did after and it was actually worse than the first one yeah, that's not just, the one you're so I, 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 I took a step back um and yeah that was in the same time period as when i recorded that plain pocket song in 94 and it wasn't even chops's dorm room actually he was he had graduated from school because he was a little older than his his uh 
His brothers? Yeah, his mountain brothers. <laughs> um, and so he was living in one of their single dorm rooms, like hmm. s- sleeping on a mattress, like on the floor. Uh, under hiding the guys. from the RA unofficially? Yes. And they were like writing and recording demo songs and stuff. Uh, we made another song over one of those Poughkeepsie beats, and it was not good. <laughs> it was a bad song. It had some clever punchlines in it, I think. I don't know. But it was like a total punchline rap, and so it was it was probably a little silly and ridiculous. Um, well, that might have been ahead of its time if it's punchline rap in 94. Not really. I mean, a lot of guys were doing that. I think the song that I ended up recording was, was kind of ahead of its time, especially since... I spent like a decade plus as a professional rapper making comedy rap records and only recently decided to make an album that was like a very dark and personal record. Yeah, It's so mm-hmm. funny. The first song I ever made was like that. And then I said goodbye to that and was like, you know, the clown prince of drinking and sex. That was like my thing for like a decade. We'll get more to look on the blight side later because... Um... Uh, as you said, you know a lot of dark personal matter is touched on that album. Um, personal but, dark matter. Oh, I love oh, that. <laughs> personal <laughs> dark about, matter. You mean you're gonna talk about some feelings <laughs> and emotions on the show? We never go there. We never. Oh, we're in the, we're on, we're, in the, we're with the right company here. If you if any of you ever listen um, to this podcast and check out my personal Twitter, one of the titles on my Twitter is the Overlord of overthinking and oh that's good that's you you were the one who gave that title to me oh wow way back oh yeah (laughs) holy shit so you've grown up so much since then oh yes when i first met you you were such a nervous little guy yeah 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 well you know let's let's roll back we we were we're moving moving too forward here you're right you're right Uh, you made a good point though because when you have stuff that you're making and you're trying out and it's not working at first like any performance, it's. It, I don't need. I don't need to spell this out. You're a comedian. You're a musician. You're an actor. Everything that you're gonna do at first is gonna suck, no matter what. Especially if you're performing in front of a live audience, you're gonna. The failure is bound to happen, and you're bound to be making mistakes because by making those mistakes, the modest beginnings make you better, and you know what not to do next time, kind of thing. Sure. I mean, there's not to say that that track had any of that, but with everything else you're talking about, the stuff that you're not I mean, comfortable sharing, it clearly shows that there's there point. is certainly stuff that you made that you knew, okay, eh, we're not going to do that again. Uh, and well, I want to try this now instead. You know, just take a stab at some different thing that you haven't done before because how does this fit? How does this feel? Does this feel right? Am I company flow? Am I not? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be like you guys. I don't yeah. want to be against you guys. I love company flow. Exactly. Dude, I actually, I, I had a really disheartening experience when I read an interview in which LP said, I don't understand why everybody thinks our records are so weird. I'm paraphrasing here. I thought that we were doing our best EPMD. And I was like, what? Because, you know, it's not like I didn't love EPMD. Of course I did. But I thought they were super conventional they hip-hop They were duo. very conventional. And, and I was like, how can you say that? You're like the father of being weird and interesting and amazing. And you wanted to do EPMD? What maybe, the fuck? Maybe, maybe if they were trying to go for the Jane songs or you've had too much to drink. but I don't know what, what he meant by that. I didn't find anything about their records to be remotely comparable to that. But I was happy that trying to sound like EPMD led that guy to where he went because he, he literally inspired the beginnings of my indie rap career. 
What's the third? Oh, you about to say? Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say. I think a lot of artists have a goal, and they can't help but create what comes out of them naturally. So it seems like LP's attempt to sound like EPMD wound up uh, creating a whole lot of distortion and oversaturated drum sounds. And I remember reading a interview with Eric Sermon where they were talking about early EPMD production, and they wanted to sound like Marley Mall or whatever, but they didn't know how to sample, so they would loop a tape all the way around the room so that it was long enough to like make the beat and like that's I don't insane know. <laughs> well my, my only point being that if you you have your hero and then you can't help but be yourself yeah i mean you try to replicate what you've heard and you end up your own imprint is on it and it becomes something that's uniquely you in its own way i think when i was trying to put like a timestamp on that last one i was a little off i think that was from 96 I think I was still a student when I did that one. And then the next one I'm going to show you was from my last semester at Penn State. So it was it was 97, and I was way deep into, like, Stretch and Bobbito tapes. Mm-hmm. And I, I had, like, my own little collection of vinyl building. Um, and back then, you, you couldn't just, like, go to, like, whatever store and buy it. It, it was so hard to find. There were only a few places in yeah. the country that sold that stuff, like in person, you know, in the flesh. So you were either getting it from like a distributor mailing list thing or, or whatever. And, and Fat Beats actually, their catalog was literally like four or five sheets of paper stapled together with just artist names and song titles for twelve inches. That's that's like how you shopped. And so I would go on to hiphopsite.com and use the real audio player mm-hmm. and uh and it would buffer for like an hour and i would like Naturally. oh god damn it and then you would hear this super teeny bizarre sounding like clip that was like 40 seconds long of like a, i hated that i remember that so well of, of company flow you brought back burners. such terrible <laughs> memories cdnow.com their previews yeah they had a uh, a brief aside, they had a video for end-to-end burners, I think. They did. And I, that was their I watched video. it on BET with my grandfather, who did not understand what was happening. Oh, it's a really confusing <laughs> video for me, and I'm a rap guy. They're, like, in the train, and then there's, like, graffiti that's happening around them, like, animated, and you're like, what the fuck? Anyway, I think this song is from that time period. Um, and unfortunately, this is not an original beat. I don't know exactly what it is but i know it's something from a like a b-side remix of a fuji song um and we just thought this beat was like so nasty and like what they did with it we were like what the fuck like why did you do that to this like nasty beat and so we we decided to make this into like a real romp and this is the first ever recording of my side group the odd couple with j-love yeah this is the first ever recording of us together. Awesome. Um, and <laughs> we were so creative that we called it The Joint because we couldn't think of a name for it. And so we kept being like, dude, play him The Joint. Play him That Joint. Um, <laughs> Sometimes we, working titles stick. Yeah, because we, we, we didn't have a name for it because there's no chorus or anything. It's just us like trading rhymes. And um, this was like one of the first things that I recorded that I was like, you're there, man. Like you can rap now. Like, you need to make a record, you know. But I, I didn't have beats. I didn't know where to get beats. Um, and so we were still relegated to J-Love's four-track, his little Radio Shack handheld mic, 
And uh, uh, you know what? I think he actually forked up and got like a, a Shure SM58. Um, and we, uh, I think we had to record this like live and just pass the mic back and forth because we were both like technically inept. So <laughs> we didn't even really know how to use the four track. Um, the DIYs. Yeah. Uh, Plus he was also ethos. like. The, yeah, yeah, the whole DIY ethos in the, in the 90s is completely different because now you could. I know nothing. I don't know much about technical you can recording. Use your iPad, right? And but I could still, something. I could still Google that shit Boom. up. Like you can part, use your iPhone and yeah, record yeah. something. And part of the point is that the four track, you could record something and stop, and then record something else on the other track. But if, like you were saying, you didn't quite know. Yeah, how to work we, that. we weren't very good at it, and so uh, <laughs> I think the problem for us was that we didn't really know how to punch in, mm. um, and so uh, we had to just like quick hand the mic off to each other and like do our trading um so this song is called the joint and technically it's the first song by the odd couple starring j love and lewis logic let's do Crookedness, yo, I'm hooked to this like strong arm stretch to Bobito. I took a diss and turned it into royal props. Niggas shitted on the mic like toilet spots. Taking shots to the dome like naked wops. You used to bone, so when your crew come home, you still be whack. Front that filthy act and represent like Philly blacks. My mountains areas come out with various flows to curl your toes and still react. My verses con juice from Vietnam troops with artillery. You bargain in for arms and sold the bump to infertility. Aside from villainy, to still a bit of mizen. Beefing like the sun splits horizons. Victimizing weak MCs like signs reading dicks for riding. Get to vibing with your boys to men, I poison them like a steady dose of arsenic. I had a charge for violating until the cops parted it. Some smarter shit, so your crew will get diminished. Sort of like a record player ruining your Guinness. It's a witness, senior with a sign saying we take shorts. It's in the game like EA Sports. Yeah, yeah. Remember back in the past, before these MCs turned trash Wasn't about how you could hit, but how long you could last Turn fast, see the end before your eyes Devils in disguise, with an excess amount of lies Thoughtful's on the rise, surprise Use the force, found hip-hop lost, boss Cross the negative bridge and hit your main source Yours is strictly tracks without a DJ Faking jacks, had a scratch, focus attached Blow up like D-Day, the Weeway Crazy, but got my style lazy If you had 64 bits, you still couldn't play me I say G, English say my dear chap I'm fed up with the crap, I'm ready for some bloody real rap attack like an MC Rottweiler holler more words than a dictionary on the shoulders of a scholar blue collar workers getting jerkers of the way of the world materialists need to read the lessons taught by the pearl the girl you be loving shouldn't be the girl you be shoving cause your father was bugging now style you be dubbing little something I left you to think about before I be out melting pots on the MCs with the clout so catch the reference incited ignited by the license that I write with been spited by the filthy uninvited dirty looks to my forehead watch me in the eye we can fight like Beats and cord red, swallowing a sort of corporate pacifist. 
rhymes I'm amped like an activist with minds trapped in time with properness And hold the whole metropolis in contempt of caucus center stage It's burning up like Fahrenheit compared to centigrade My essence made as that's paid to the wildest MC Squeeze the leaves, make hash fast from the roots of trees Conceived this very thought that you sought to freestyle Meanwhile, bought a single 1450 with a smile Child, don't mean to stress it, record sales adolescent Prepubescent, shining out sun, white like fluorescent I'm blessed with milk crude, don't know what to do but rhyme So we drink brew for brew and pass mics line for line Your mama's mind grabbing mics while I'm guard rebellious It's average cats holding gats, fuck like Marcellus Rips to our backs trying to tell us let it go But your shit mixes Michael Jackson, Bone and Debbie bro. A cherry bright as ever glow, I'm burning cigarettes Freaking this like little Kim, using kids for sex Nigga text application, the blackest nation Self-stimulated on the mic like masturbation Cats are scraping, hand to hand like selling weed No respect to the father of the rhyme like self-esteem I'm helpless B, two MCs can't turn back If I see one single joint, then I gotta burn that Words flat, deflated, cause inflation blows up Vocab is immature till the style grows up Sold up all my seeds to warn them about the greed Best believe, walk the streets and get your pockets G Free my people's minds with one rhyme to make things clear Instead of blaming the world, best to look in the mirror Fear the man, you're nearer to the source of your problems Relax to the melting pot tracks and try to solve them When you were in your last semester in college you and uh, J Love, who I assume was also a fellow student of yours, yes, uh, he, uh, yeah. fellow colleague. At the yeah, school. he was, uh, you know, also a Penn State alumni. You guys uh, rolled with a crew of people who uh, were DJs, rappers. Uh... Uh, a lot of our friends were college radio DJs. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of how we got involved in the indie rap thing. I had never heard an indie rap record, and we went up to the college, the student station because we were invited up there to freestyle. Um, and the DJ was going to just like spin instrumentals on vinyl and let us rap. And we were listening to the show while, while he was doing that. Like, um, and, and like, wow, man, I, I can't believe some of these songs are so weird and cool. What is that? And he started talking to us about indie rap and company flow. And J-Love was like, I know who those guys are. I have Stretch and Bobito tapes. And I was like, you do? What's that? And and he was like, oh, you're not up on that stuff? And I was like, no, I don't know what it is. And he gave me a dub of a, a Stretch and Bob show that had uh, Eight Steps of Perfection on it. It had uh, an indie record that Faramanch guest appeared on by this dude that used to call himself Street Smarts. Um, hmm, and yeah. then he changed his name to FT for mm-hmm. Fuck That. Yeah. And... Uh, it was called Metal Things, and it was Faramanch and OC with FT. That song is fucking awesome. Yeah, I haven't really heard is. that. What the hell? How oh, that? dude, that's an amazing song. I loved I, any track that Faramanch was on in the mid '90s. Was dude, he a destroys it. That's amazing. I gotta hear that. I'll um, send it to you. All right, I'll send it to you, dude. That shit is hot. It, it, this whole college radio discussion that you're uh, having with us is really quite. Uh, relevant because Doug and I met in college through college radio. We both um, share mutual acquaintances of whom have a similar story to yours in that they were not nearly as uh, um, fruitful and uh, compelling in how much you've traveled and you know, the career that you've had, but they're nonetheless, their roots were with college radio. They rolled with 
people who were on the radio, they had shows themselves. They came in, people would throw instrumentals on, they were DJs, they would come in, they would freestyle. Our boss, our manager would have a hissy fit, but it didn't yeah. it, it, it didn't make a fucking difference because it Does was Does that hot. stuff still happen, man? No. That, that was such a gorgeous time. I don't know if college radio is even really still a thing anymore. I don't listen to college radio. I, it, I know that college radio still exists. I just don't know if it's like it was when I was there. So like, um, are just, they even still using turntables? My my uh, no my label Fake Four Inc has a college radio campaign for my new record, so I'm assuming that college radio does still exist because like, they're paying someone to make sure that they play my songs. By, like, by the time I got to college, though, at least, BC, we had a college radio station, but it didn't have a tower. It was all online. Like there was, you couldn't t- be driving around town oh, and pick uh, up the college radio. Like it. You see that part, I don't know about because yeah, I'm not, I haven't really. Been... I know that it still exists in some form. In many places but i don't know about the transmission part yeah. of it like is it dying along with the rest of terrestrial radio yeah is it and are people as interested in it since there aren't jobs in it after college or like and i think also too in the way we exchange and engage in music and learn about new music has changed so much since college radio heydays in the 90s that i mean now when you find out about a new act whatever your your genre is half the time it's through message boards or internet friends or just even something like spotify being like hey you like this why don't you try this yeah. That there's no, you don't sit down with your friends and be like, oh hey, here's this really awesome CD I want to play you guys. Like, have you heard this? Yeah, yeah. I mean it happens, but not much. Yeah, <laughs> no. And I don't think there's the same uh, idolizing of radio personalities yeah. now that there was, you know, ten, twenty years ago. No, when yeah, when I got my indie career off the ground, like Stretch and Bobito were like the dudes. Did you ever hit him up and show? I, him I got tape? to be on the CM Family show before when cool. when Bobito was hosting by himself after he parted ways with Stretch. I hadn't gotten successful enough while they were still together to be invited on the show, but um, it was a real honor to get to go up to KCR and, and be on CM Family. I definitely was a nervous wreck and kind of embarrassed myself, um, but you know I I had a good time being there and it was a career milestone that I uh, had a recording of and put on one of my early collections of like b-sides and outtakes and exclusive stuff called music we drink by yes i, I think i think it was heard. at the end of it it was like live on the cm family Lamb show when was the first time you performed live uh, i was at penn state this is such a sad story okay so i told you guys that i was really struggling to cultivate like a, a black identity and like way of being that would camouflage my actual upbringing when i was at penn state and so I was trying to learn to code switch and to, to speak in Ebonics and dress the part and like be convincing to go unnoticed. Um, and people would catch me. You know, I had, I had a crush on this like really cute Dominican girl from Brooklyn. Um, and there, there weren't a lot of people from like real cities at Penn State, but there were a few. And so if you were from Brooklyn, like people were like, damn, you're like real deal. Uh, and I had a crush on this girl, Danya, and she was a Dominican chick with blue eyes. Um, and she was really cutesy. But not like, you know, like a show pony. She was cutesy. But um, she she sussed me out, man. Like, she could tell that I wasn't real. Um, and she, she called me out on it. She was like, Louis, you try too hard. Like, you, you're not pulling it off either. You know, and it was a humiliating moment for me. And I look back on that stuff. And, and I'm actually kind of grateful for that stuff now. Because it is part of what uh, sent me down the path that I, I went on. And... Eventually, I did get good enough to trick people, and nobody noticed. You know, I could fit in with any street kid, and no, people did not know the difference. Um, but I think I I came to realize that that wasn't 
helping me to formulate like a positive identity as like a black guy. And so when I started to succeed as an indie rapper, that did more for me than like this weird act and persona that I had cultivated, you know, like just getting some recognition as a rapper and making some money and stuff like that. Like, and seeing my career legitimized did more for me um, than pulling off a convincing act as like what I thought a street inner city black guy was supposed to be like as if there were none of them who were like punk rock guys didn't talk like what you think black people talk like because you're watching too much tv I'm sure there were plenty of those guys but I didn't know that back then and so I ended up having this really clumsy period that you know once I made it through the clouds or whatever like I I found myself and was like you can be the suburban dork that you are and still like count as like a black guy and, and everything was better after that um I, I look back on those stories those humiliating little moments and, and i like them and and one of them that happened during that time period was the first time that i ever i ever rapped live um i got invited by a dj who was like a student radio dj this guy mm-hmm. uh, dj saint b his name is brendan dj saint b had um I don't know if it was a regular thing. I can't remember if he had like a regular gig or if he got invited to spin a night at the local nightclub. Um, and it was called uh, it was called Tattoo for a long time, and then they changed the name of it to Crowbar. And this this was not this wasn't in Happy Valley. This was yeah. Uh, this was in Sugar Valley at Penn State, like yeah. like just the one nightclub. In- yeah, just off the campus, like on the main street. So um, it was on College Avenue. We, we made a recording of me doing a written verse over the Fast Life remix beat Wow! Um, for the Nas song. It was like a Pete Rock remix of Fast Life. I called it the, the Poe Man's Jingle. Um, I, for some reason, back then, when I first started writing rhymes, I was all on this like sociology thing and like classism and what have you. Like Everything I was writing was about that kind of stuff. So I had recorded the intro for his mixtape and his mixtape was called The Nutty Professor is Dying Slowly at High School High because he had basically built it out of all the weird little 12 inches and stuff he got at student radio from those different soundtracks. Wow. Damn. Um, and so, Was there any Rhinestone Cowboy on it from High School High? I don't know if that was on it. I don't remember what was on it. I have a copy of it somewhere That's at my amazing. house. Um, so... So what ended up happening was uh, this dude, DJ St. B, was making this mixtape. And he was like, I want you to do like the intro to the tape. And I'm going to record an original verse of yours. Um, and then this is going to go all over State College, like all over town. And I was so nervous about it. And I wrote this verse and I came over to his place and I recorded it on a little four track. And he played it back for me. And I was like, wow, like that sounds real. It sounds like a real rapper. Like. And it was one of the first recordings I had had. It was before The Joint. <laughs> uh, where I was like, damn, I sound real. I sound like a real rapper. Um, I had finally cultivated you know, the voice and the dialect and whatever. He made his mixtape, and the fucking thing caught on like crazy. Like Everybody around town was listening to it. It was wild. Um, and he kept having to go back to Kinko's and like make more and more. And I mean, he, he sold some. He gave a lot of them away. But it became like a thing. And I wouldn't say that people necessarily knew me because of it, 
or you know they recognized my little poem in shingle verse but he got this dj gig at crowbar uh, formerly known as tattoos and um he was like do you want to do the poem man's shingle live and i was like you mean like in front of people <laughs> and he was like yeah like i'll pull you up to the dj booth and give you a mic and you can rap it live in front of the club and i was like yes but i didn't even think about how scary it was going to be or whatever so i agreed to do it and um in a side story uh, part of my clumsiness in trying to convince people that i was like an urban black guy and like cultivating the dialect and the dress and everything and like a few people were able to like spot me you know what I, were you wearing i was i was literally wearing like gigantic jabot jeans uh timberland hiking boots uh tommy hilfiger hockey jersey a backwards like army cap dreadlocks gold fronts that was my costume. You wore the gold fronts to the show? Oh, yeah, man. Definitely. Right, I guess. Um, Why not? Go all actually, in. Actually, I think I was wearing a polo hockey jersey. But, you, but you went all in. Oh, yeah. So um, here's what ended up happening. There was this dude who was also from Long Island but told everybody he was from Brooklyn. His name was Steve Stiles. <laughs> he was a fucking asshole and a bully. And he looked like he was a 35-year-old man even though he was like 21 or you know, whatever. And I was like 19 or something. And I was super, super skinny. I was like 120 pounds. And st- like, I looked ridiculous, man. And this dude was like a grown ass man with like biceps and shit. <laughs> um, he had a baby with like some white chick that he got <laughs> pregnant. And um, he told everybody that he was Jamaican and that he was from Brooklyn. But he was definitely from Long Island. And maybe his family was West Indian, but he was not from Jamaica. And he would put on like a... He was like code switching the way I was, yeah. but with a Jamaican accent. Yeah, a fake patois. Yeah. Oh, it was bad too. It sucked. Um, <laughs> but the dude had tons of polo. And, and that was like a really big thing at that time period. You had to get lots of polo or lots of Hilfiger or Nautica. Yeah. And, um, you know, my family was, you know, like... Uh, was a blue collar family, but like very comfortably middle class. And so they could afford to buy me shit like that. And I, I had... Um, big refunds because I had a full scholarship so my parents would, would pay for a housing up front and then they would get this big refund back and um, I, I would keep it and so they'd give me a check like every semester for like $3,000 and I would just go hog wild buying like polo and Hilfiger and stuff and my mom for some reason just let me do that I wonder if my dad even knows <laughs> um, and I had an impressive collection of polo and Hilfiger and all that stuff and uh there were like maybe three guys on campus who were really well known for their impressive collections of those kind of clothes and steve styles was one of them and uh, he hated me because he didn't like it that i also had a lot of nice polo but i was so fake because I, I i couldn't pull off my like ebonics code switching thing and so i would get caught by people like him who were a little bit too authentic for me and uh but also not authentic. Right, because he was, he was trying some other shit. The <laughs> totally. second person who is trying to like call you out for faking or something. Yes, you know? um, and uh, something awful happened. Um, I went into a JCPenney's on my break, because I, I worked at The Gap, and I was in the mall, and I went into a JCPenney's, and there was this smoking hot, light-skinned black chick who was obviously like me. She was like a mutt. Um, her name was Amy, and I had a... I instantly had a crush on her. I was like, whoa, hot. 
And I don't know what happened that day. I felt super brave. I started talking to her and I got her number and um, I ended up dating her for a little while. And I found out that she had a kid and I was like freaked out by that because she was like 20 and you know, she had a baby. Then I found out that Steve was her ex-boyfriend. Um, and she lived in the, uh, the grad student housing because she had a baby. Um, they let her, even though she was undergrad, have a grad, stu- grad student like little apartment. Right. And it had a basement underneath it. And Steve had left a bunch of his stuff, like baby stuff from his daughter under there. Um, even though they had been broken up for a while, they would fight all the time. And she, he would come over there like trying to get his stuff or whatever. And I didn't know this, but she was saying really nasty stuff to him to try to hurt his feelings. Maybe it wasn't even true, but she'd be like, you're bad in bed. Lewis is better in bed than you. And like tease him. This was not by the time you were performing, was it? This was this before a, I had performed. This is all, oh, pre- this is all, no. leading, up, this is all leading up to the incident oh, at the club. no. So... This is getting worse and worse. This no dude, offense. Steve, hated me. Oh, gosh. And I didn't know all that stuff was happening. So there's like weeks leading up to me rapping live for the first time. And the night of it comes up. And before the show, I was like, I had seen some really big and amazing shows. And so like I learned by seeing those shows, you got to do crowd participation. You got to yell something and then they got to yell it. But I'm not confident. Like no one's going to say the thing that I tell them to say. Like, how can I get them to do it? And I was I was smart. You know, I was a sociology and psychology major. And I was like, I'll just use what I've learned to get them to go with me. Kids love to curse. But why are they just going to say what I tell them to say? And I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll make it so that they're cursing at me. And I, I bit Redman's little skits that he would have on his album where he would have Hurricane G saying fuck you red man and he would say mother fuck you back to her and man it worked like a charm man I had that entire place screaming fuck you Lou and then I yelled mother fuck you and we kept doing it and then I did the poor man's jingle and it went over so well like I I didn't screw up I didn't forget the words or anything and this is the first time I ever rapped live in front of anybody through a microphone and I gave the mic back to St. B and he was like wow man you were amazing <laughs> and he hugged me and I turned around, and I walked out of the DJ booth, and as soon as I looked up, Steve Styles right in my face. Damn. Much bigger, much more developed and manly than I, much blacker. And he was like bumping me with his chest and cursing at me and telling me that he was going to kill me and that he had killed before. And I was so intimidated by him because his, his city black guy act was on point. Not his Jamaican act, necessarily. <laughs> But his like urban Brooklyn black guy thing was very convincing. But did but but the, but the question is, did you believe him, and did he need more people? No, he was by himself. <laughs> he was I sufficiently mean, terrified on. Oh my god, he was so much bigger than me, and he. I, I'm not kidding. He literally looked like he was in his 30s. Yeah. Um, and he, it's not like he was like an unattractive guy. He was like a handsome, yeah. like muscular guy in good well, shape. But did he at least but, like give you? Props just, on the show. He, I mean, no, he didn't no, give that's a shit. Not, that's not what no, he was there he, for. He walked no. up to me and he was like, "Yeah, motherfuck you, Lou. Motherfuck you." And I was like, "What do you want?" And he was like, "I'll fucking body you, man. You think I haven't done it before? I killed the motherfucker. I'll kill you." And I was, I was shitting, dude. And he was like, "I'm gonna kill you. You talking shit about me? Blah blah." blah. And I, man, I wouldn't even say the kid's fucking name. I was so afraid of him. He finished talking shit to me. He was like, "You're a little bitch." And everyone here knows it. And, like, people started to look and, like, watch. And he was like, he's a bitch. 
You see he's a little bitch. He knows he's a bitch. You're a bitch, right? You're a bitch. Okay, go home, bitch. And I had to like turn around and walk away because I was so fucking afraid of the kid. Um, so I I sucked it up and I, I, I went home and told my friends and they were like, man, fuck that guy. And my one friend, our son, pretty sure I was like, Rand, will you please kill that guy for me? But Rand is like a gentle giant. He's like 6'5 and like just a huge dude. His hands are so big. Like they, they look like alien hands. They're insane. <laughs> but he, he was like a comic book nerd. He wasn't going to do anything. And everybody just tried to reassure me instead of beating Steve up for me, which is what I really wanted to happen. Um, now I kind of wish I would run into that dude because I'm in Brooklyn and I live here and yeah. I'm not a little kid anymore. And I wouldn't try to fight him, but I would be like, you're an asshole, dude. Like, you tormented me for no fucking reason. Like, I had never done anything to you. I think we like, all wish we would run into that guy yeah, that in our some, life. Yeah, people from the past. You're going to be like, look, I don't know what your deal was, but... I don't know why you were so mad at me in particular. But yeah. you were pretending and I was pretending, but... I would love to meet that guy now. And call he was probably worried that you were going to blow his cover, just like that whole, like, I'm doing it slightly better. Yeah, I know that you're pretending, and I'm yeah. scared because I'm pretending. So, But I'm if I call you ever being the you. pretender, then nobody's going to look at yeah. me. Dude, it's just like in Fight Club, when, when they're going yeah. to the, the meetings and, and pretending like they're both tourists. You know, he's like, her lie reflected my lie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's true. That, that's what happens when you're... You catch each other yeah, faking. Exactly. Here you are now in a fruit with after this fruitful career, um, still taking shape, I should say. And I think you had the last laugh, so I don't think. No, I, I definitely had the last laugh. It's what? just that's why I want to run into the guy again. <laughs> it's not just to be like, hey man, you know you were mean to me. It's also to be like, hey, you know I'm actually like a professional rapper and I've been all over the world and I had more that's bizarre the, sex than you'll ever have. That's the real last in the laugh. entire yes. life that you got left. Yeah, like living well is the best revenge. And I got to stop making it up after that yeah. point. Like, yeah. yeah, totally. I, 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 I let my mask off and was like, fuck that. I don't need it. Switch gears. Um, speaking on the college DJ tip, Doug here, uh, and I, as I've been mentioning a few times during the show, we were in college radio together. We are about to hear an air check tape of yours. Right. This is me and uh, Altruistic, our friend Andy hosting our underground hip-hop show on our college station in like 2004 and if you haven't if for anyone listening that hasn't done radio before you have to do these annoying tapes where every time you turn the mic on it starts recording the tape and then you have to tr- like turn it in and they evaluate it and it's part of the process of becoming a radio professional as they evaluate all of your talking bits so uh, I found this tape of you know it's like four to five minutes of just me and andy talking on the radio and um by this point i'd kind of gotten not terrible at being on the radio (laughs) such that we were on at like maybe 10 to midnight this was sophomore year right i probably sophomore junior year something like that but still not like great and i don't know you'll understand why i picked this part in particular when you hear it so uh let's run it Yeah, yeah, yeah. 92 WICB City Rhythms. That was common right there. I yeah. used to love her. The Ninth Wonder remix. Before that, we had National Disgrace by Atmosphere and Long Way Down by Swollen Members. Flipping that Sarah McLaughlin sample. Which track is that? The Atmosphere? Yeah. I didn't no, even, the, uh, I didn't the, even know. The Swollen did, Members joint. I, I didn't hear when you played it, so I, I didn't even know. <laughs> that was Sarah McLaughlin on the uh, hook. Craziness. What do they do next? I do not know, but what we're gonna do next is a uh, a track by Mission. Are you sure? 
Doesn't seem like it's working. I hope so. Uh, Got to power up the turntable. <laughs> right on. Java Live, altruistic, doing the underground show, having a good time, chilling. This is mission right now. This is disturbing behavior. Burn all of your clothing. 92 WICB. 92 WICB, City Rhythms, Underground Show, Java Live and Altruistic. Uh-huh. That was kind of linguists right there, featuring I don't know, that, the whole underground on that track, <laughs> as, as Deacon says on the beginning of that, I think. Yeah, that was nasty, nasty filthy. filthy. That's how we do. What do we got to talk about right now? Oh, yeah, big things going on every Wednesday at the Lost Dog Lounge. City Rhythms holds it down all night long. From yeah. 9 p.m. until 1 a.m. Till, till last call. Yeah, we got uh, Jive Alive. We got Altruistic. We got RDK and uh, Boomzy Killer and the Wiz Kid bringing you everything from underground to uh, shake your ass. Lost Dog, uh, right in the commons. No cover whatsoever. You gotta pay for drinks. But, but you that's know, no big loss, right? Really. Yeah, you always gotta pay for drinks, you know what I mean? Or you can't get drunk for free. So come down, check out the only consistent hip-hop party in Ithaca that's at the Lost Dog every single Wednesday night city rhythms doing the damn thing and if, if you're listening to the show and you feel what we're doing you got to get there a little bit early because me and Altruistic are always on first <laughs> and everybody shows up at 10 30 catches the end of my set and completely misses what we're trying to do yeah right I'm, and, I'm spinning for nobody and somebody doing homework on the side so come on down and hear some down tempo and some independent ish Real independent-ish, like Def Jux, you know, Rhyme Sayers. Do that if you like that. Come down at 9 o'clock, see me spin. Word, word. Oh. Got to take a little break right now, but we're going to be back with music from uh, Handsome Boy Modeling School, Last Emperor, EPMD, Tone Def, QN5, all kinds of crazy stuff. And G-Unit. And, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. City Rhythms. <laughs> yeah. 92 WIC 92 WICB yeah. City Rhythms that's EPMD right there never seen before remix off there 1996 96 it was later than that sorry I've, I'm I'm all thrown all over the place I think it was more like 97 I don't know I'm bad with time reunion album back in business we got the track coming up by Lewis Logic called Dust to Dust which has a little sample at the beginning of uh Jason Lee's character Banky from Kevin Smith's. Drop that knowledge. <laughs> yeah, drop no that doubt. film knowledge. Uh, Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy, the story of lesbian turned straight, turned back to lesbian. Uh, Crazy love story. But yeah, uh, you college students should like that, huh? <laughs> but uh, what does that have to do with college students? Oh, uh, you know, college students like lesbians. Oh, <laughs> I didn't realize. Oh. <laughs> No doubt, but whatever. Kevin Smith is a uh, dope uh, director or screenwriter. I don't know much about movies. I don't watch much TV, but I know Lewis Logic is an ill storyteller. This track goes out to my man Fiber Optics because he's not doing the show with me right now. You know, that's a little bit of technical bull-ish, but whatever. Javelin's holding it down with me. That's ill. But uh, this track right now is by uh, Lewis Logic, as I said a minute ago. You should listen to this story. You could learn something. That girl is way too conservative for you. This is all going to end badly. ICB. Yeah, you don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? Wow, that was, was awesome. too conservative for you, Melissa. 
You dug up the right thing there. Sir. Yeah, well, I knew I had that on the tape somewhere, and I had to like look around everywhere for it today. Um, well done. But uh, yeah, that's that's straight out of college radio. And that was good fun right there. I, I'm I'm still blown away at all our DJ names. Mine was Hip Hop Anonymous. I, I'm blown away by like how many of them there were. It was like a long list of names to remember. Yeah, well, that was the uh, like the hip hop night that we did at Lost Dog Lounge, which was like the which only... our junior year. Yeah, and that we did it Wednesday nights, and yeah, there was like five DJs, and we all got in 45 minutes to an hour, and uh, no one would show up until 11, and then after the only reason people showed up is because uh, we could get away with drinking underage. Uh, up into a certain point and then they uh shut that down so then everyone stopped coming so you can kind of hear us like weaselly like uh being like please please come please come early hear us play <laughs> rap music be because, our friends yeah like uh like he mentions um like uh boomsy killer and the and uh boomsy killer dog oh is that what he did they were, like dance hall stuff, yeah or? they were the two guys Easy that now. were actually um jamaican and yeah. awesome and they would play dance hall and all the they Jama- knew they weren't jamaicans like steve no no, no they were these guys authentically jamaican they they i worked with these guys very closely and they knew everything any like dance hall track that you can think of that you heard in the mid 2000s mid aughts or whatever it was more than likely big long before it got big in America because of the distribution and all that. And well, there was 30 Jamaican people that lived in Ithaca, and they all came to see those guys. Yep. And that was what led that party. But That's cool. That was yeah. it. That was awesome. 30 people at a party is not bad in Ithaca. It really isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's take a little quick break, and when we get back, um, we're going to listen to some very, very interesting raps from children this is lost and rewound and you are all very patient do you want to be on lost and rewound do you have a danziger zone of your own gathering dust in your parents basement then send us your tapes we want whatever you've got from elementary school spelling bees to high school mixtapes send it all to lost and rewound at gmail.com come on now get embarrassed with us One of my uh, friends from growing up in my grade, he is on a lot of these tapes, and I was not really into hip-hop music. So this whole discussion that we're having on this show is pretty amazing because um, most of the time we're talking about stuff that happened when we were 12, 11, 10 years old. I wasn't into rap music then. I admit it. I had not one rap record. I had maybe an interest in Coolio from the Fantastic Voyage. That, that was my introduction to that rap. That counts as a rap record. Well, I didn't have it, but I uh, love that video to death with the, the mariachi band coming out, out of the trunk. trunk. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I toured with that guy in Indonesia. and What? Yeah, and it was amazing, and he was really funny and fun to hang out with and uh, a very generous and thoughtful guy, actually. I mean, he was a crazy person. Like, he needed a whole room to tell a story because he was such an animated cartoon character of a guy. Yeah. Um, and he also bookended everything he said with N-bombs, which was... Amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I knew nothing about rap music, but I had some of my friends who did. In this clip, he's talking about a rapper. I am not going to give any introduction other than that. This is another new thing on the Danzig Zone. Nate. Nate's ridiculous raps. Brent has it. Totally. 
Now I will be putting down the group Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. See, this is one of the first rap groups ever, and it's really bad, just like all the rest. This is how it goes. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes, I have to wonder how I'll keep them going under. <laughs> Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> this is how Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five sings this song. Horrible, isn't it? This has been an edition of Nate's Ridiculous Raps. Wow! I totally love that. Well, my, my own cackle aside, um... Dude, you had the highest pitch laugh in history. That was amazing. I still do. I, this happens every time somebody new comes on the show. We listen to one of the Danzig or Zoe clips, and we always come back around to the fact that everyone sounds like chipmunks. Yep, basically. And that's, yeah, I think he sounds like a girl. He doesn't sound like a chipmunk. Well, I still sound like a girl. No, I am a female. Come okay. Would <laughs> you all? No, no, I, no. Seriously, that was adorable. That was it's, highly oh, adorable. We're 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 getting there. We're we're building. That's up. just the tip of the iceberg, really. We're, we're we're glazing over the point that Nate does not like Grandmaster Flash. I like how he <laughs> called Grandmaster Flash like as if Grandmaster Flash was the rapper. But little did he know that it was actually Melly Mel that was rapping the entire thing. Yeah. Grandmaster Flash was just the curator, the DJ, if you will, yeah. of the whole <clears throat> shebang. But he was uh, reciting it to mock it and yeah. say that this was a bad song. It was a and terrible song, apparently. According to Is Nate, that what he was saying? Yeah, I, was I saying, missed that in it. That's what he was saying. I, I got a little too distracted by the high-pitched laughter. Nate's ridiculous raps, and this song is horrible. And it... What does he even say? <laughs> He was just making fun of the 70s rap style. Or yeah. it was early 80s, probably, no? Probably. But the. I guess that makes sense, though, because even though the voices sound like, okay, that was a long time ago, it was probably when those records came out. Based on your ages, while, not at all. While you were rapping for the first time in 95, 94. You guys were doing that. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you had an interesting uh, uh, well, anecdote about I was that. just thinking about that in particular because when I heard that song for the first time was probably around this time period and I did not like it because I was into like uh, Regulate and like every, all every other Regulate is the weirdest rap song of all time dude this yeah. song doesn't make sense this fucking dude who's supposed to be from the streets happens upon a bunch of strangers gambling illegally on the street and rolls up and is like what's up guys I'm gonna gamble with you and then they rob him and he's like, oh no, I can't believe they're robbing me. I gotta get my friends. What the fuck, man? That song is insane. It, that could have been like an Amish guy, like like uh, fucking Randy Quaid in Kingpin, like rolls up on a group of urban guys and is like, what is this crap? <laughs> Let me shoot dice with you, How gentlemen. the fuck was that Warren G's like, first song? He's supposed to be like Dr. Dre's was relative. Was it his actual like, first song that he did? It was the first famous one. It was his first big hit. Above the Rim That's soundtrack. what I think is so weird about that song. He's like a dude who's supposed to have tons of street cred or whatever, and he rolls up to a bunch of strapped strangers and is like, because that's can how... I be in your craps game? And then they <laughs> rob him. It sounds like... That's his song. It's the stupidest... Oh, Johnny Good Show. I'd but love me, to join your me game. Me at 11 slash 12 did not understand that concept. Oh, I'm sure you were like, so what I, is he even talking about with Isilo and whatever? Well, what I understood that, that they were playing dice, but I didn't understand From the video? The or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then, like, there was, um, that summer when that song was huge, there was, like, a top 20 rap songs of all time thing on MTV. And I was like, oh, I gotta see this, because I gotta learn. And 
that Grandmaster Flash song was number one. And I was like, I don't understand this at all. I don't like this. Why is he so slow at rapping? I hate it. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's weird if you didn't grow up in that time period. I I mean, my first rap records were from, like, very close to that that era. Like, Like, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of my age. I was born in 74, so, like, the first record that I got that was mine, not my brother's, that, you know, I didn't borrow it from anybody or anything, it was actually mine, was Roxanne, Roxanne by UTFO. Mm. Mm. What's something I only know in retrospect, like, I didn't have that as a kid, I just know that it was great after the fact and i think like my first couple records were probably like that above the rim soundtrack that had regulate on it and like house of pain and then eventually like i got uh like a brand newbie tape and i was like i get it now if only i knew (laughs) in fifth and sixth grade i'm the devil all the kids who were listening to rap were listening to the the g-funk was huge the g-funk was just had blown up completely this was in the age when uh you know, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre were pretty much in the uh, at the top. And the next clip we have is actually Nate, who, by all intents and purposes, was very much kind of like a popular kid. And a bunch of kids sort of <laughs> went all in with him on this uh, very amusing track, which was taking place in the classroom in fifth grade. Um, I guess just like during a break or something. Let's take a listen. What song is that? What song is that? Slam! 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 Okay, here we go. Alright, here we go. Are you ready to slam? Slam! Let the boys be boys! Slam! Let the boys be boys! Slam! Yeah, that's not alright. They did a good piece of that. Ready? Go. One, two, three, and to the four. Snoop Doggy Dog got the trays at the top. Ready to make an entrance, so back on the before I have to pull the strap on the cut. Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Confident along beach together, now you know you're in troubles. Ain't nothing but a G thing, baby. Two Motown G's going crazy. Death Row is the label that pays me. Unfatable, so please try to phase me. Well, it's back to the lecture at hand. Perfection is perfected, so I'm allowed you understand. From a young G's perspective, my lord, you dig a trick, you gotta find the contraceptive. You never know she could be earning a man, learning a man. And at the same time, burning a man, unless you burn it out, you little fella. Isn't loving good enough for the woman? Better while I'm shrilling up real Hadil Holyfield. Well, so cause and hoes to know how I feel. That's not good enough for a proper chunk. I want a small piece of some of that funky stuff. It's like this. That and this and I, it's like that and like this and like that and I, it's like this and like that and like this and I. Dre creep to the mic like a fan. Well, I'm creeping and I'm creeping and I'm creeping and I'm back with the cap and my beeper cap beeping. So it's time to make my impression felt. So sit back, relax, and strap on your seatbelt. You've never been on a ride like this before. So put a beautiful new can control the maestro. At the same time with the dough rhyme that I'll kick. You know, and I know I'll put some of the funky sh- don't make a joke, I don't choke. Because if you do, you won't have no clue of what me and my homie Snoop Dogg came to do. Okay, let's see, they and everyone all those guys are going to do something else that I do not know any of. Okay, here we go. 
Cheeseburgers in the house with the cheese split liver and the hot dog in his left hand leg. Oh, whoa, whoa, homie, don't play that. Oh, whoa, 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 homie, don't play that. Yes, I said, oh, whoa, whoa, homie, don't play that. Oh, my God, that was amazing. Dude. <laughs> So many things right now. So many things. Where do we start? Start. Yeah. Uh, okay. Alyssa, I, Alyssa I, ladies okay. first. Yeah. I, my one, my biggest thought actually listening to this whole clip was I was trying to remember when the first time, lost in around secret time, as we frequently have confessions on the show. I, young enough and was not interest like was not exposed to hip hop enough to really, I'll, like even what we're talking about now sort of predates my, um. And You're a youngin, we know. No, also too, just like the music I was listening to that, like at various points in my life. That honestly, I think the first time I heard Dr. Dre was probably on an Eminem track when I was in like eighth grade. Sure. Um, so, like, I'm I was trying to place actually the first time I heard that that song as its own standalone song and not a sample off of uh, whatever album it was that Dre came out with right after Marshall, right after Eminem's first album when Dr. Dre, like when Dre's career. You're talking about Chronic 2001. Yes, thank you. So that was my thought, and trying to keep up with the squeaky child voices and actually following the lyrics. That... And, to go back to something else we've discussed on the show previously, did somebody just like sit down and actually write these down and listen to the song a million times? Because this does sort of predate Googling lyrics. Well, and... yes, I think someone specifically yeah. did sit down and listen to it a million times because they did not get the words right. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, he, uh, there's, uh... They don't I don't get my... them right on the websites either. Well, that's true, but my favorite part of this... There's in the song he says two loked out G's so we're crazy yeah. and then this version he says two Motown G's cause we're crazy. Oh, yeah. I love it made that. me so happy because he didn't. That is adorable. <laughs> but I think also one of the uh, under understatements why is, would that, you be in Motown, G? is that unless know. you have the record, chances are is that um, Nate was probably memorizing the video version. Now he had an older brother, and we have talked about how when you have an older brother, uh, is Lou is your uh, brother older as well? Yeah. I have two older brothers you and two, two older sisters. The young, the baby of the family. Yes, we uh, have talked about on this show the whole dynamic between older and younger siblings, and when you're an older sibling, uh, you have that power to influence the younger sibling in you know music and intelligence and everything and what you have learned in your culture in your culture um of being older and knowing things that they don't so this guy had an older brother i think maybe six years older so, so you think he may have had access to the real he tape actually had the, or just the video version? I think he just probably had a brother who was like by the time this tape it was made he was in must be in middle school or high school by that point. So he was obviously listening to Nate to all the G funk and like Nate Dog and you uh, do Snoop listen Dogg to what your older brother listens to the Dog Pound whatever. You almost don't have a choice. It's yeah. like he's your model for what's cool because he's older and like he's I, I don't know. I mean that's one of the reasons why it'd be awesome to have uh, the the source individuals who are saying uh, and singing subsequently on the show. But it is what it is. The fact is is that uh, surprise. This, Surprise, surprise, it's really hard to track people down after 15 years if you can't even identify everybody on the tape. Whatever yeah. he was singing there was probably the way he heard it or the way that he, it translated to him or perhaps... Because I, I heard say something that sounded like it was an edit, like a, a, a radio edit on the video or something. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Before I have to tear, strap on the cut, it was definitely not the lyric for I, I really, so, Your thoughts, though? I really like the radio versions better than a lot of those early Dr. Dre songs like Let Me Ride 
Oh, yeah. I like the radio version way better. I hate how they forced in all these curses on the studio. It's just another motherfucking, motherfucking, fucking day for Dre. <laughs> like, it seems like he was just like, oh, wait, we're doing the dirty one now? Almost okay. trying too hard. Yeah, like, and it was just like, let's just put fucking in between you know, as many words as, as we can without making it not fit rhythmically. Thoughts about 11-year-olds uh, yeah. seeing Onyx Let, and Jeep. Let's get to that. Okay, first of all, I've seen Onyx live. I was in college when that was popular, and I saw them at a, oh God, Players Nightclub. That was the other nightclub at Penn State. Yeah. Um, and they performed right next to the dance floor in front of the DJ booth because there was no stage there. Uh, and they put like red velvet ropes around them. Nice. Uh, and they were minuscule. And I was small back then. Those guys are so tiny. Um, so that was funny for me getting to hear you guys do Onyx. Uh, when, when the Snoop Dogg thing happened, it made me think of a few things. First of all, I had alluded several times earlier when we were discussing my childhood to the idea that because I was the, the only brown guy where I grew up, um, I, I took a lot of shit and, and was f- fairly heavily tormented. Um, and part of the reason for that was that this was in the 80s before it was cool to be a black guy. Something happened when, when West Coast gangster rap transpired that made it so that white kids in the suburbs and in the Midwest and the country wanted to be black kids. And it became super cool to be a black guy. And I missed that part. My childhood was before that happened. And we had Prince and we had Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan and people like that. And people loved those guys, but they didn't want to be them. They were just like, I love them. You know, once Tupac and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg happened, you saw kids that were like, you, kids would literally say like, I wish I was black. And, and that was not the case when I was a little kid. So it was really weird for me hearing these super prepubescent voices that actually sounded like girls doing these Snoop Dogg lyrics and laughing and stuff. It was it was almost surreal. And my favorite part was when the one kid said contraception. Because <laughs> I was like, there's no fucking way he had any idea what contraception was. Yeah. And I just imagined to myself, like, what is this little guy thinking? That means because he must have had his own interpretation. Right? So that's, Again, I say, that's a whole other rabbit hole of song lyrics you did not understand. Yeah, when you were 10. perhaps okay, he thought it had something to do with the the up up down down a b a b code <laughs> for contra. We covered that last time. Konami. I yeah. actually had a Nintendo Power tape that we played last time with all of the contra codes with on the it. contraception. Yeah, right. since episode two, um, which incidentally was the episode where we were talking about um, having older or younger siblings was also where we touched upon sex and sex when you're a kid and what you've learned about sex and since that episode was released i kind of did a little thinking and i was wondering if maybe perhaps per chance this was the year that we had sex ed and i don't think we did i feel like there may have been a time we did but we didn't take it seriously because fifth grade maybe we learned what a condom was but like it just even went if over you our head. did, they probably didn't call it contraception. That's like such a '50s clinical term. It's too much of an SAT word when you're freaking 11 years old yeah, to really totally. Get, I remember the, the first time hearing like Bonita Applebaum and being like, "What's a prophylactic?" <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Crazy. So these, these are antediluvian terms. They don't work on little kids. Third, if you said in the '90s, Jimmy, like a Jimmy hat. Like, a kid might have been like, oh, a Jimmy hat. I know what that is. Jimmy. What's the uh, third song? Do you recognize that third song? Whoa, whoa, homie, don't play that. I I was completely lost when that happened. Are we sure? 
kids just weren't screwing around at the end of that take. Like we have no idea. We don't know what it is. Did you write that song? Is that what happened? So nothing that is happening in these clips, incidentally, involves me. This is all people that uh, I am pimping out for this episode. Um, the next track we're going to be listening to, the next clip, I should say, <laughs> I call it a track because it might as well be a song, um, is in the same re- realm of obscurity. Another thing that I have to mention is is that I had no idea what rap, what rap was at all, again, as I said, but I also had no idea what this upcoming clip is about in terms of what this kid named Noah, who is one of only two black kids in my class... Wait, where was this? Woodstock... New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. I had no idea what this kid was saying at all. So you all. didn't know what this track was. Likewise, you didn't really know. Guys, the- I have scoured, scoured the web for this. Between the homie, the homie don't play that and what you're about to hear, if you know what these tracks are, we want you to tell us. Check it out. Yo, I have to sing a little song. Monday, we have to sing. really weird too that was like the one black kid in the neighborhood is that what you said yeah the other person uh was there actually i think was nate helping him out and noah i had gone to school with since first grade so from first to sixth grade we went to school together and god i'm i I really don't know what he's doing now i feel like he's doing some high-powered job in washington now after serving in the army he's a uh he was open to being on the show at first but he's gone kind of um uh, I guess it, I don't off know off the radar, off the radar, whatever. I mean, it's fine. Uh, you he's know, got secret army shit to do. He's busy. He's he's doing busy stuff, and if he knew that, that he was being talked about on this podcast, he may pull the plug on the entire operation. Who knows? <laughs> but because at least we knew he has that we could do it. We we did we did it with a bang. Like we went out in style. If he pulls the plug, because we just played one of the most amazing. That was awesome. Raps and, ever. And right away, I noticed that there's a certain confidence that he had about delivering raps. You know, like like an entitlement. You know, like 
I can do this. Even if he didn't know the words, he was like, no, you, you'll wait. Now you're going to hear it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, he felt comfortable in that way. And you could hear when you guys would do it. Like if you messed up, you almost felt like embarrassed. Like th- there was a certain thing about the way rap music was at that time period that if you were a black guy, you felt like it was for you and you, you, you could have your way with it. You yep. know, and if you're a white guy, and, and I noticed this even in the early days of indie rap, you had to be schooled. You had to know your shit so well to, like, defend yourself against naysayers, mm-hmm. you know. And, and even rappers who became super popular, like Sage Francis, you know, from the indie rap world, they studied up on, like, old school rap that was before their own times. And they know shit like an encyclopedia as a means of, like, armor against naysayers who were like, you don't belong here. You know, I, I feel like the first crop of white kids that made rap work for them, they were like that. They had to be like bulletproof in order to survive the criticism that they were going to get. It was weird hearing him, and even at that young age, you could tell he had a confidence about delivering raps and purveying the culture that you guys didn't quite have. Like, well, why rap music, and why not like? Let me start. Soul with. or R and B? Yeah, like you know, like like there were many other genres. Because of that the aggression, were... man. I think it's because of the aggression. Like those other genres of music were more about like the softer side of the heart and the human experience, you know, or the the pained part of it. The rap music was like, yeah, we're in pain, and maybe it does hurt, which makes us soft in some way. But like we're shouting out against it, you know. It had like a certain, um, you know, visceral quality to it i think 90s rap to I mean rap to a certain extent is very obviously is very still heavily masculine but 90s rap in particular i think was very much oh yeah super hyper masculinized and i think there's something that's very attractive about that as i'm assuming yeah. as like a young boy like being attracted to this masculine identity of i'm the man yeah man i mean that's what the, like the first thing you learn as a boy yeah you know like, it was be a man be well, manly it was over masculine <laughs> and it was also very um uh, I guess demoralizing to women. I mean, more than any other genre, or more than any other decade. I think uh, the videos. I guess more or less. <laughs> they were insane. Dude. They were they were crazy. I mean, BET thrived uh, on the big booty girl. Yeah, video video, video girls are still a thing, but you're right. In the '90s, it was it was out of control. Yeah, it it it's really kind of exploded then, especially with the. Um, forefront of the g-funk era but i guess the other thing i wanted to say was uh that that came up when you were talking about how you identify as a kid with the aggression and everything um in j-zone's book i know you're 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 a pretty uh uh, close partner with j-zone in terms of like you know yeah he's been a long time ally and colleague his book recently uh i got to read and he in this book talks about the generation gap and how like every other genre somehow manages to find an audience and continue to find the audience and everybody from your grandpa to your little kid knows who the Beatles are but in terms of like or any other group and can appreciate these groups whatever the genre may be be it blues be it rockabilly be it um be it folk music but rap music it like it's only within the genre sorry within like the era yeah, the so like the people who grew up period. in the 90s no, only know the '90s. The people who grew up in the aughts are only gonna know that. The people who grew up bef- like the '70s and the '80s, they only like that shit. They don't like the new stuff. Yeah. Everybody who likes rap music, as Jay Zone pointed out, 
only likes the music from the era that they grew up in. That's true. There's, it's Even so if they know the other stuff, they might know it because they feel like they had to, as we were just discussing with guys like learning about rap that happened before they were even alive, yeah. just so they could use it as a shield so as not to be naysayed. Well, but I'm, that's not really their shit. I'm, yeah. willing, I'm willing to call myself out because in, one, in, earlier in the show, I was talking about how the, there was no other time like the 90s. I probably wouldn't say that if I didn't grow up in the nineties. Sure, but the fact is, is, is that I recognize that. I think the nineties were a really this... harmful and dangerous period for rap music. Personally, you know, people cling on to it in a way that is really bad for yes. modern rap music. Yeah, culturally, it, 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 it there was a lot to say about uh, how it affected the psyche of the music listener, uh, but. And in terms of, I guess, the quality of the music, I guess you could arguably say that the 80s or the 90s were better, depending on what uh, era you grew up in. But I guess it's the, that's the difficulty, is, is that there is well, that generation. Well, there's thing. always the thought that um, whatever music you grew up with was part of you creating your identity. Yeah. And so you associate most closely with whatever it was that was out when you were graduating high school, starting college, graduating college. And after that, you've already become a hopefully become sort of a complete person and you've moved on from that so you're not looking for something to associate with yourself and become part of your identity anymore so uh, the things that were part of your era are never going to change unless you're going back and searching through other stuff that came out that you missed right and, and you can still relate to that because it was part of that era that you so closely associate with but you just it was off on a tangent at that point. Yeah. I would say also too though as as a genre rap stylistically with within each period is changing very quickly and you listen to an indie rock album from 93 or 2010 like there's they're very sonically similar. I mean the bands are different but the sound of the music, the style of the music and 90s rap sounds very different from rap in the aughts, sounds very different from late 70s early 80s and also to the way the communities are so what's happening right now who the artists are now what's the train it's it is a very short attention span community um and i mean you're seeing that even in the audiences that follow the stuff for like shows and things like that she's right i mean i think there have been dramatic changes in the rock world from the 90s to to present but there's enough of a, a cohesive trail that you can follow that it doesn't seem like otherworldly you know from era to era you know, they they are very related to each other and, and they there's a lot of fan retention that happens and you don't really see that in rap music. And I've always said as a professionally touring artist, um, one of the things that our genre suffers from is that fickle, uh, hyper-specific subdivision of the fan bases based on era and region and whatever. And so when you go and look Let's just use um, the Bowery Presents network of venues in New York City as an example. For um, those who are not familiar with the Bowery, the Bowery is a club that's uh, down t- in downtown Manhattan that uh, has been around for a number of years now. And the Bowery Ballroom it's is... It's a super famous old venue. Yeah. And they built a, a production company around the identity of the Bowery Ballroom called Bowery Presents. And they work with a network of venues all over the city, varying in, in size from Mercury Lounge, which is like their introductory level venue of about 300 cap, to Bowery Ballroom size, which is a little over 500, and then Webster Hall and Irving Plaza, which are a little bit less than 1,000, and then one of their bigger venues being Terminal 5. Yeah. Um, and, and now they're even doing shows as big as arena shows. 
from the Barry Presents network. Now, if you look just within the Barry Presents production company's model, you can see something very disconcerting and sad happening, especially for guys like me who make indie rap music. Barry Prevents sends out a mailer every month that have like what concerts are coming up and what have you and tickets available. And when you look at the bands that are listed, there are literally, I'm not kidding, a thousand or more 2,000 indie rock bands who can sell out and headline their mid-level venues like Bowery Ballroom, Irving Plaza, Webster Hall, ranging in size from five to 1,500 people. At least a 1,000, maybe more. There are 10 indie rap acts that can do that. 10. That's sad, man. Maybe 10. Maybe not even that many. And it's really weird as somebody who has devoted his life to this craft so wholeheartedly to see the difference in the audiences. And I've even seen people who are at the indie rock shows at a rap show, um, an indie rap show, and they they follow like a specific little set of like indie rap acts. Um, and And the saddest thing for a guy like me is how it's subdividing even further. And because the era is changing again, the acts that that could do that some of them are starting to fall out of that that little group of 10 people who could pull it off and now there's only like two or three from my era who can do it you know like atmosphere and aesop rock there's very few in fact and you're seeing a lot of the uh the young hipster kids who were helping groups like atmosphere to sell out big venues the way indie rock bands do um, because they were they were the indie rock audience and and they were compounding with the hip hop audience to make groups like Atmosphere successful. You're seeing those kids be like, I don't like smart rap anymore. I only like ignorant like street southern hood rap. And they're disregarding guys like me who make like smart guy indie rap that's that's um supposed to be like a highbrow version. Of, of hip-hop see my problem is, is that i don't I, I have a hard time really relating to this you know only so much the fact that i don't go to shows as much anymore at all hip-hop rock whatever the case is i ha- used to go to shows all the time when i was more musically involved and i just don't anymore so i guess when you're talking about this it's really disconcerting the music that kids gravitate towards more now is not music i would ever want to see ever see live Versus yeah, versus your kind of music, which, be it on record or be it live, I'm happy to support that. Do you um, have an example of this? I went to a Clips show when the Knitting Factory was still... That was a long time ago, right? It, or, it's know, a few years I ago. I like the Clips. I like okay. the Clips music. I will never see any group like them or them themselves in a show atmosphere again. Because it just, for some reason... There's just something about the the crowd, something about the fact that they're they got too many of their goons on stage. They can't do the I, breath I control. I know exactly thing. what it is. Yeah, these guys did not cut their teeth on stages to get their record deals. And, no, maybe they did. They it, didn't. That's why they don't know how to perform live. And it's not right. just guys like Clips and what have All you. Right. You see that with guys like Nas and and uh, Pete Rock and like dudes who came from the era where you got your record deal. Because you made 
some good recorded material and you met the right people and you showed it to them in offices and what have you and then you got signed and then they put your videos on TV and your songs on the radio and that's how your record deal worked. So when you showed up to perform live, you had little to no tour experience. I've seen dudes from that era who when they get up on the stage, they're so green at rapping live that they don't know how to do it. They grab the microphone and they don't, I mean, you're holding an amplification device. That's the whole purpose of it. You just tell them to turn it up and if you're holding it properly, they will and they'll make you as loud as you want to be yeah. and the crowd will hear you and it'll be just like on the record. These guys don't seem to understand that and they get so overexcited when they get on the stage. They're wrapping their hands over top of the ball, the microphone, where I the sound's that. supposed to go in. <laughs> we refer to it, you know, for people who work professionally in the industry as, as cuffing. Um, they cuff the microphone and then they scream into it as though if they don't do this, people won't hear them in the audience. And I feel like when I see even acts like, like someone like Ludacris who has like a big, deep, resonant voice on his records, you'd think you'd go to see him live and it would be so exciting because he would have his, Luda! No. I saw him live in Toronto for a big festival that it Echo. It was so bad. He was screaming! See, I saw this past winter. I thought he was actually pretty good. He didn't even sound like himself. And it was really upsetting because I was like, wow, man. Like him too. You know, he, because Luda got a start on the radio. He was a radio DJ back in Atlanta. Radio is way different. But I mean, it seems like you would know how to handle, handle yourself sound equipment with yeah. a microphone. Right, you would know Maybe. how to handle sound equipment. I guess it depends on how much involvement you had and how the audio at the station worked. You know, if it, <laughs> You know, and if, and if it was student radio, sure, you'd have involvement. But if you're on a big, like, major market radio station, you don't have nothing to do with that. You just show up. Everything's all set up for you and whatever. I think that dude's a great rapper. To, from what I've seen, do I think he's a great live performer? Definitely not. Because guys like that, that's not how they got to where they are. You know who's really good live and still is? Eminem. Because he fought his way up the ranks. I saw him as, as on like, his first tour. He was... Terrible. Was he? His stage performance was not there yet. He had yeah. to do it. I actually eventually. saw him get booed off the stage too, and then I watched him get amazing. Yeah, he learned it and is great on stage now. When he started, he was not great on stage. He did a twenty-five. I, mean, I think everybody's 30. pretty bad in the beginning. Yeah, oh, hey, nobody's, nobody's good As you're talking about. I'm not asking for everyone to be perfect the first time out. It was his first national tour. I saw him play at Johns Hopkins with the Beat Nuts and Lord Sear, and it was a, like a great show. But he did 25, 30 minutes, was out of breath, like wasn't prepared to do it. Yeah, yeah. But And the problem was he followed Beat Nuts, who were so on point that everyone was like, this is the best show I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I played with them before. They, they're good. They do a lot of trading back and forth and stuff. It's, you know, they've been doing it for a long, yeah. long time. Now, I was just going to say, I, I watched Eminem get good. I saw him get booed off the stage once, too. He was opening for Last Emperor and... Um, Karis won. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was it was bad. And I actually got a, I got his phone number after the show, and I talked to him about doing a song together. And it was uh, before "Hi My Name Is" came out, but after "Just Don't Give a Fuck." Mm. And I called him, and it went to his voicemail, and it was his voicemail. And I was like, "Wow, this is great. I'm gonna do a song with this fucking guy." And then "Hi My Name Is" came out, and within a week. The phone number was rerouted because <laughs> he he got so famous so quickly after that song. Totally, I had the Baker Boys mixtape where he rhymed over a Karis One beat, and uh, 
he like shouts out uh, Wordsworth and like a couple other people. It's amazing. And I was like, this guy is going to be huge. Who is this guy? And then I heard how my name is, and I was like, it's that same guy from the tape. Yeah. This is amazing. I picked a bad example. I, you know what? I think there are examples of guys who are remarkable in the underground scene and can perform circles around your garden variety commercial rap artist the, because they had to cut their teeth in tiny little venues. The example I always think of is A, people under the stairs, and B, time machine. Sure, because they both kill it live. I think Bus stairs. Driver. Like, that dude's remarkable yeah. live. He's a fucking fantastic live rapper. These are all examples of, incidentally, West Coast groups. And I don't know if maybe there's a West Coast or an East Coast uh, uh, um, uh, mindset. That... The West Coast guys are better at the live shit. You know, or at least they used to be in, like, the indie rap scene. I think a lot of people have gotten hip to getting good at your live show. And maybe that's something we did learn from indie rock and punk rock bands and stuff, that you can... Build your audience by being awesome live. Atmosphere figured that out. Well, let me ask you. I, yeah, I can tell from um, just conversations off the show that your influences are more than just rap. So you see a lot of shows. Uh, you are oh, yeah. in a lot of shows uh, that are of the rap variety. But you're influenced probably by more than just rap. So by Definitely s- by, by, s- by seeing By seeing music genres in other shows, there must be something that you have into your advantage to influence your live music style sure and and i've made friends with the people who i think are the best in the indie rap scene you know at live performance and i've specifically seek these people out based on um rumor and um reference and um my own little coincidental path crossings with people If, if i come across somebody that i find is like a really amazing live act i will try to get on tour with them by some kind of means and even if they're a smaller act than me, um, I'll take them out as an opener because I want to have to play after a guy that's so good. If I don't step my shit up, I'm going to get outshined. That's how you get good at playing live. You know, and I never thought I was going to be this kind of guy because when I first started playing live, I was fucking atrocious. And yeah. I was just like what you said about Eminem. I would lose my voice every single night. And I would scream and you couldn't hear me. And I was out of breath and nervous and just... I was shit, man. And I thought, well, I make good records, though. I guess I'm just going to be one of those guys that, like, the live experience is disappointing. Um, But the records are good. And people have come to know me now as, like, go see him live. If you like his records, go see Lewis live. It's a totally different experience. When can somebody see you live next? I don't know exactly... um, here anyway in new york because that's okay this show this show is a podcast we, we're all the, over the place on the internet I'm everybody be, all over the i'm going to be touring down to south by southwest uh so i'm probably going to start at the end of february and i'm going to make my way through the midwest um and down south and then create a loop that goes down through like louisiana and then back uh into florida and up the east coast again uh, so beginning um last week in february or uh first week in march Say where could people go to find out more about this? About your once you figure all this out, <laughs> plug, plug, plug your website. This is the opportunity to sure. plug your website. Um, plug your website and talk a little bit about the album. Yeah, uh, the easiest places to find me are on Facebook if you just look for Lewis Logic, or on Twitter if you look for Lewis Dorley, L O U I S D O R L E Y, um, or Fake Four Inc. dot com, um, and that's basically where most of my information about shows and stuff online ends up um get the album look on the blight side 
Yeah. Uh, after seven years of uh, release silence, anyway, I was touring quite a bit um, and experimenting very, very heavily with uh, my sound and uh, learning to play piano and to sing. Um, I finally decided to make another rap record, um, largely by suggestion from my label mate, Chesky, and the influence that he had on me watching him be a very fully formed version of what I had worked over the last seven years to become, which is to say a skilled rapper who plays instruments and understands and utilizes the principles of music theory um, in his songwriting. And I didn't really know anybody out there who was like that. And I, I tried to find people, and it was a really lonely experience. <laughs> um, the few people who I did come across who were kind of similar turned out to not have any real interest in that specific concept. Many of them were self-taught and didn't actually know anything about music theory, couldn't read sheet music, didn't even know what notes they were playing on the instruments they played, uh, and had no interest in learning them. You know, I would talk to some of them, and I'm not calling people out. And, and be like, dude, in five minutes, I could teach you very simple formulas that would allow you to build any chord, any scale, to know exactly what notes you're playing and everything, um, to know what people mean when they talk about chord progression, communicate with musicians who read and write sheet music. Um, and they were like, no, I don't want that. I don't care. You know, I think it's cool that I can write music and I don't know that stuff. Almost like it was like a badge of honor to be able to write music without knowing, you know, it'd be like being able to write books based on memorization of what words look like when they're spelled out. I, I feel like it's not a very fulfilling way to do things. And that if you really wanted to have an intimate relationship with the way your songwriting works, you would want to know this stuff. But I kept running into the same brick wall. Uh, and then I met Chesky and I didn't know that he was a trained classical guitarist who could play jazz, yeah. flamenco. Like He also plays violin and little drums and piano. And I had no idea when I met him that that was the case. I heard his songs and was like, wow, he must have found like guys who like indie pop to help him make his records. Astronautilus is on the label too, isn't he? He is, but he's he's one of the guys that I was talking about. I'm not trying to badmouth <laughs> him, but he's, he doesn't really know anything about music theory. He doesn't really play instruments. Um and maybe he will in the future I hope he does I hope he does um, he, re he makes really interesting and elaborate records and, and that much I love um, but you know for me this was specifically about the concept that you could enrich your output by learning a command of these tools and, and then utilizing them to make rap records that had arrangements as lush and elaborate as what you hear in rock music pop, indie pop, singer-songwriter, classic rock. Um, you know, genres of music where typically the demonstration of the elementary principles of music theory are more present and uh, more elaborate than what you hear in rap music where things tend to be very repetitive. All the instruments stay at the exact same volume level from the time they enter the song to the time they end, which is no other music in, you know, Western pop music or, you know, just Western music in general is, is like that. It's a very strange thing to do. Yeah. You know, um, I just wanted to be able to write rap records because the lyrics are so detailed 
and complex and there's so many words so many meanings and syllables and everything that goes into it why shouldn't we have music that's that elaborate too it's not just a rap record the rap the record uh, that you just put out is there is rap in it but i would go to say that it that there is uh, more than just rap it, there's a lot of indie pop sensibility that totally. you're putting into it every single song has that feel it's there's not intentional yeah it was my desire and it was because i wanted to give rap a backdrop that was as complex and interesting as the lyrics themselves are which is not to take away from the many years of like standard sample based hip hop beat making that i have enjoyed that's where i learned how to rap those records are imprinted on parts of my life as the soundtrack for what I was doing then. And I wouldn't even be a rapper if it wasn't for them, you know, but that doesn't mean that I have to keep making stuff like that now. I mean, can you imagine if you applied that philosophy to other things like, okay, houses used to be in caves. Should we just have done that for like all eternity, like cave houses? You know, I I don't think that early rap music is that rudimentary but i do think that it would be foolhardy to not yearn for more and to want to know where the future of this can go and to take it to some place that it hasn't already been alon how do you think that progression relates to noah and nate rapping in the in the early 90s is there there any way to bring this episode full circle (laughs) when you're a kid and you were involved in just being a kid and you love music in a certain way that doesn't have any credence other than just you enjoy it and you want to do nothing more than to just do what you want and like these kids wanted to be baseball players or something and they just love music and they're enjoying life and they they don't they're not really thinking about the future they're just thinking about what's going on in the now and so the fact that you have this love of music I think the uh, the Onyx song really, really uh, drove, drove it home. Let the boys be boys. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note... Wow. Lewis Logic's new album is called Look on the Blight Side. It's out now. It's available online. And um, I, It's on Spotify. It's on Bandcamp. It's I was going to say iTunes. it's out in the stores, but who's going to stores anymore? Hey, man. I mean, you can still find records at stores. Um, smaller, privately owned mom and pop record shops do carry stuff like Fake Fours. Look, if you're part of the digital age, I, I don't begrudge you for that. I'm a physical copies guy. Like even when new indie pop albums and what have you come out, I'm, I'm I always get physical copies by some means or another. Um, especially of the things that I really really like. But I have a Spotify account. I listen to shit there too. It's you know it's part of how I figure out what I like. Um, I encourage people to check the record out on Spotify or Bandcamp, on iTunes or whatever. But if you want a physical copy, you can get them at fake4inc.com. Or you can go to a small retailer, a privately owned shop, and um, either they'll have it in stock or you can have them order it. Give them a shout out on Twitter. It's at L- Lewis Dorley, L-O-U-I-S-D-O-R-L-E-Y. Lewis Dorley here in the studio with us on Lost in Rewound. Thank you so much, Lewis. Thank you, guys, us. so yeah. much Thanks for having for me. Out. I really had an awesome time hanging out and talking with you guys. This has been great. We'll be back in a little bit. Lost in Rewound. And that is our 
show. Our thanks again to the homeboy Lou for joining us this go-around. You can buy his album online. It should be on the Fake 4 website, and as he said, it's on iTunes. It's called Look on the Blight Side. We're also on iTunes and Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and all of that internet-y kind of stuff. Lost and Rewound, it's all us. Go find it. So subscribe to the show, and I don't know, follow us on something. And if you're listening to this around the Thanksgiving holiday or going home for the holidays in general, dig out those old tapes and send them to us at lostandrewound at gmail. We'd love to listen to them and have you on the show to talk about it. Thanks again, everybody. See you next time for another holiday, our year-end episode, our end-of-the-year episode. Holy shit. We made it, guys. <laughs> we made it! Let's not get too excited. We, still have to... <laughs> we have to survive long enough to do that. We still have to make a December episode before it's a full year. Lost and Rewound is hosted by Alon Danziger, Melissa Lloyd, and Doug Johnson. Am I forgetting something? No, no everything's That's good. Okay. It's fine. Lost and Rewound. Lost and Rewound. Lost and Rewound. Boom!